church family, would you be seated? And as you do, will you take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter 6. We will pick up this morning in verse 9 where we left off last week. uh, And we'll consider the rest of that chapter as well as the entirety of chapter 7 as we look at the first half of the flood account this morning. As you get settled and get your notes and Bibles out, uh, let me give you an update of what's happening last week. I know I uh, kind of previewed this some, uh, or what's happening next week. I know I previewed this some last week uh, in that we were hoping for a uh, lifting of the restrictions here in Hampton Roads by our governor to allow us to be able to meet at the park uh, for our annual church at the park. That uh, did not happen, and so because it did not happen uh, this week, whether it happens between now and next Sunday, uh, is irrelevant because we have to be able to make plans and have things approved for us to be able to be out there. So we have already made the decision that next Sunday uh, we will gather right out here in our field. We will still have church outside. Uh, it will be at 10:30, not 9:30. It'll be at 10:30. Um, so we will have lunch after if you would like to stay just because you're coming doesn't mean you have to stay for lunch. Uh, traditionally we all do lunch together out at church, the park. We're not doing that this morning and that we're not going to share food for very obvious reasons. Okay. So if you want to stay for lunch, you need to bring some lunch, uh, with you. Um, don't come expecting others to feed you. Uh, we will though have Uh, the church is going to provide some basic drinks, things like waters and juices uh, outside after the service. You can stay, the kids can play if you are comfortable doing that. If you're not, I still invite you to come uh, for worship with us. Bring your own chair uh, or something to sit on out in uh, outside as we worship the Lord. Hopefully we'll have uh, a nice weather day. For those of you that are joining us online and are continuing to do so uh, during uh, this pandemic, Hopefully this provides an opportunity for you to be able to come because we know uh, for some of you outside would be more comfortable than inside with uh, your level of tolerance of being around people and being exposed to people uh, right now. And so if that is you, hopefully you will come uh, next week and join us outside. Um, If not, we will not have a live stream of next week's service. We will have a recorded version of next week's sermon that will be posted as soon as we can get it online. So you would need to go to our website or go to one of our social media uh, pages later in the day to be able to uh, see the service. But because we're moving it outside, we're unable to move all of our live stream equipment out there, which is why we have not done more outside. We've seen other churches do outside Uh, church during this time. Uh, For us, our ability to do our live stream well means that we need to be in this room to be able to do that. So hopefully many of you will be able to uh, join us outside. If not, you'll be able to catch it uh, recorded uh, later. We look forward to a great time uh, outside. Let me just encourage you, uh, come casual, folks. It's uh, Labor Day weekend. Your, your pastor's going to be preaching in shorts. Okay, it's the one time a year I do that. Um, don't, don't feel like you've got to dress up for church and sit out in the heat, all right? Um, so we're, just, we're having a picnic and a good opportunity for us to worship the Lord uh, outdoors next Sunday. I'll invite you now to stand with me. Uh, For the sake of time this morning, I'm going to read just the first two verses of the passage that we're considering here, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 before we pray and begin our sermon this morning. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, 
and Japheth. Let's pray together. Father, I am grateful this morning for the song that you have placed in our hearts that the redeemed can sing together that Jesus saves. What a wonderful thought as we turn to an ancient account of a flood of God's judgment. The redeemed in this room stand with the redeemed around the world and knowing this, we find safety and security in Christ alone. As we see how you respond to sin in our world, would we, the Christians in this room and watching online, find peace in Christ and our faith in him? And would the lost be drawn to salvation lest they find themselves outside of the ark? Bless our time in your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Regardless of the amount of time you have spent in church, you are likely familiar, at least somewhat, with this account. As this is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. It it could be argued that this is at least the most famous story in the book of Genesis. This is the third section of Genesis. The sections of Genesis are marked by the statement, these are the generations of, and we saw the generations in the beginning of the heavens and the earth, then the generations of Adam, and now we are in the generations of Noah. Noah was introduced to us last week when we looked at the spread of sin, that sin was prolific in Noah's day, that it had spread with mankind across the known world. And we saw that Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That transitioned us then to this third section where Noah is introduced to us as a righteous man who walked with God. Because this story is so familiar to so many of us, even from childhood, we run the risk, I believe several uh, risks this morning, of missing the point of the passage. So I want to warn us beforehand of the avenues I believe we could travel down and that many do tend to travel down in uh, approaching Genesis 6 and 7 and 8 that could, that could make it so that we do lose the point. The first is that many often get lost in the details. That we find meaning in places where meaning is not necessarily intended to be found. It, it's, it's scriptural to know how big the ark is. But I'm not necessarily uh, convinced, actually I'm not convinced at all, that there's any meaning in those numbers. It was just big enough for the intended purpose. But we can so want to study the minutia and the details of the numbers that are included here and the size of things and how many days this lasted versus that lasted that we end up missing the point of the passage. Second, we run the risk of becoming consumed by logistics. So often the questions that surround the flood account are things like, how did Noah get all those animals on the boat? 
How did Noah feed all those animals on the boat? How did Noah keep the lions from eating the zebras on the boat? Did it smell really bad on the boat? We get so consumed with the, the logistics of fitting animals on an ark and how or where the floodwaters came from and where the floodwaters went and what type of flood is actually being described here that, that people become so uh, enamored with the logistics of this that we miss the point of the account. Our third risk is that we would reduce this simply to a children's story. There there is probably no other story contained within the scriptures that has found itself plastered on the walls of nurseries around Western civilization as this one. In two weeks, we will have our second parent-child dedication of uh, this year, we'll be dedicating, I believe, as many as a dozen or so uh, parents and children uh, in two weeks. And I can almost guarantee you that at least one of them has decorated their nursery in Noah's Ark. Nothing wrong with decorating your nursery in Noah's Ark, by the way. It's a beautiful picture of God's love and salvation, at least in the story proper of Noah and of the Ark. But if all we see is this train of animals marching happily two by two into an ark and God placing his rainbow at the end, I believe we have missed the point. Fourth, we run the risk of focusing on the wrong actor. In our opening sermon in this series in Genesis, I stated very clearly that the main character of all of Scripture And the main character of Genesis is God. The Lord alone is the main character of the story. And that is true here. You'll notice in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, while we are being told the story of Noah, Noah never speaks. Not once. In the entire flood account does Noah utter a single word word. Every word spoken in this text is spoken by the main character, God. It's not until Genesis 9 that we hear Noah speak after the flood. God is the main actor here. He is the one bringing about the events that we will read in these pages. So do not miss this. God is the one at work in instructing Noah in judging mankind, and in sending the flood of his judgment across the face of the world. We begin here in Genesis 6 by seeing a stark contrast between how the scripture describes Noah versus how it describes the rest of humanity. Let's think first about how it describes humanity as wicked And so because humanity is wicked, the Lord purposes to destroy it. Look with me in verses 11, 12, and 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What's being described here in Genesis 6 is the worst condition the human race has ever been described within. Yes, worse than the results of modern humanism that has been so embraced by our culture. Worse than ancient Greek and Roman paganism. Worse than the Egyptian imperial deification. Worse than the false god worship that surrounded the nations of Israel. Worse than the sinful nature. Worse than all of that is the sinful nature of the pre-flood society. We're not told very much of their sin other than it was great and extensive In verse 7 of Genesis 6, last week we read, their thoughts of their hearts was on evil continually. So the Lord determines that he will destroy all flesh, and he tells Noah that he will do so. Now you will notice that the language here is written for us to comprehend the action of God. And as we saw last week, as God was described in human terms, having, having been sorrowful about his creation of man, and yet God is still unchanging, that that, that description that we saw of God last week puts God into, into terms that we can understand. That is the same with the description here. In verse 12, where we see, and God saw the earth, it's not as if God had turned away from the earth and now looked upon it, but it is being described in us in a human term so that we can then understand what is happening. It says, and he saw the earth, and behold. That that is a word of surprise. It's not as if God is somehow surprised of it, but the readers of the text should be surprised. Folks, we are only in Genesis chapter 6. It was in Genesis 1 and 2 that we saw that the earth was good and very good and that man was in right relationship with God and one another and nature. And just a few short stories later, now sin has spread around the world to the point where God says, I will destroy it all. There in verse 13, he says, I have determined, meaning I have purposed in my heart that I will destroy all living things on the earth. So this is the first picture that we see here in the flood account, and that is the picture that we began last week of humanity and the great sin that came to define humans in the generations of Noah. But then the Bible tells us about Noah. And Noah is one who finds favor with God, so the Lord provides for his salvation. Again, remember, the Lord is the primary actor. So we see humanity described for us, and in humanity's sin, the Lord purposes in his heart to destroy them. But because Noah has found favor with God, and we will see how Noah finds favor with God, the Lord then provides for his salvation. In both cases, it is the Lord who is acting Look at verses 14 through the end of the chapter. God tells Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. Its breadth is 50 cubits. Its height is 30 cubits. Just for those of you that don't speak cubits, that's 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. 
Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a, low, with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come to the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So what we see is here in this text, God describing to Noah what he is to do and Noah doing it. Noah is to build a very large vessel. This would not be the largest vessel ever created as far as modern vessels go, but for ancient times, this would have been larger than anything anyone had ever dreamed of. And then Noah is given not only this task of building a vessel larger than anyone had ever imagined in that day, but also filling it with two of every animal. Now next week, when we're outside, we're going to be considering the second half of the flood account in Genesis 8. And I'm going to use Genesis 8 to show how Noah both is a second Adam and is a picture of Jesus for us. But here in this text, we get a preview of that sum. Because what was Adam's responsibility in Genesis 2? One of his responsibilities was to care for that which God had created in the garden. And Adam was to, to, to practice care for the garden. And he named all of the animals. He tended to them. We saw that that's still man's responsibility today, that man doesn't lord over and abuse nature, that we are God's representatives here and we are to care for it. And Noah does exactly that. Noah shows the kind of care that mankind was intended to have for creation. Where Adam named the animals, by God's instruction, Noah saves them. So Noah builds this great ark. And God in his power, if you want to know the answer to how did Noah collect all of the animals for the ark, it's because God is God. Why should we question that? In God's power, he provides a way for Noah to collect the animals for the ark. And he fills the ark with them, not only with the animals, but with the food for Noah to eat and for his family to eat. Because they will be in this ark for a very long time. And this chapter ends by stating for us that Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him to do. Before we began to prop Noah up on a pedestal, and by the way, the story of Noah ends with Noah being firmly pushed off of any pedestal that we would set him on. I believe intentionally. So we won't see Noah in some sort of self-righteous lens that we would think of Noah as having created his own righteousness before God. Noah did not. It was by faith 
Noah believed what God had told him, and by faith, which we are told is a gift of God, Noah was able to find favor with God. Last week, we looked at Hebrews 11, verse 7. We do so again this morning to remind us of this fact, which tells us, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Both at the beginning of that verse and at the end of that verse, we are clearly instructed where Noah's righteousness came from. It came by faith. Noah was not good on his own, but he believed God. Just as Adam believed God, just as Seth believed God, here Noah believes God. He believes that God will do what God says he will do. He constructed an ark because God said, I will send a flood and I will protect you and your family and I will protect animals with you. And Noah believed him and Noah was obedient to God by faith. So here's the picture, the setting for this great story. All of mankind, dead in their trespasses and sin, great wickedness spread across humanity, possibly greater than the world has ever known. And yet this one man in that generation believes God. This one man in that generation walked with God and found favor with God, not of his own doing, but because God in his sovereignty allows Noah to find faith. And Noah believes God and is obedient to God because of that faith. So we have that great contrast and verse, uh, chapter 7 provides another great contrast for us. And that is the contrast between the safety of the ark and the destruction of the flood. Go back with me to how I introduced the sermon. One of our risks that we run in misinterpreting this sermon is to think about it simply as a children's story. A pretty picture on a wall of animals all lined up down. You, I can talk about that and you can picture it, can't you? Just this, these little animals all prancing together and Noah with his long white beard standing there at the door. And, and, and we, can, we can make this so much of a children's story that here's what we lose sight of. That because of the judgment of God against the sin, sinfulness of man, Hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people lose their lives on this day. What is being described here is the greatest earthly judgment this world has ever seen. What is being described here will only be eclipsed by the final judgment of mankind. Folks, this is not a children's story. This is a story that should cause all of us wide-eyed to look at God in awe and wonder and fear and that he brings an end to what he had created mere chapters before with safety in one place and utter destruction everywhere else. Let's look at the safety first. The Lord commands Noah to enter the ark, preserving life inside of the ark. 
Start with me in verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, and you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Remember, it is by faith that Noah is righteous. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, and also male and female, to keep them offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out for the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, the end of chapter 6 tells us that Noah is supposed to get a male and female, a pair of every living thing. And the Bible tells us that Noah did all that God had commanded him. And then chapter 7 begins with Noah being given a different set of instructions. Now, some people read in this uh, a contradiction. There's not a contradiction. There's just a clarification of what God is instructing Noah as the day approaches. There were far more unclean that Noah needed to gather two by two. But there was a certain section that Noah was intended to gather into the ark in greater numbers than the rest. And that was the animals that Noah would know to be clean. Now, this is the first time that we are told in Scripture that some animals are clean and some animals are unclean. But it, for, for Moses was writing this to his ancient Israelite audience, they knew what was clean and unclean because they had received the law of God. So what's being written here is a more precise instruction before boarding the ark. And just as we saw in the creation account, we see here another tracing back to the fundamental principles of Jewish religious practice. We've already seen the Sabbath traced back to creation the, sacrifice, the sacrificial system traced back to the story of Cain and Abel. Even the tabernacle, the place where God resides, tracing back to the Garden of Eden. So what was the purpose of these animals? Why bring more of these? Because these would be animals that would be used for two purposes, sacrifice to God and for food. And so because they would be sacrificed and because they would be used for food, it would be necessary for Noah to have more of them lest they be depopulated from the earth. Pick up in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of the water came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives were with him and went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of all animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah and God commanded him. Or God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. So just as we were told at the end of chapter 6 and there in, the, in verse 5, Noah obeyed and these verses describe to us the obedience of Noah. This is a summary statement of showing us that Noah does exactly what God instructs him to do. Now, for a moment, we're going to skip verses 11 and 12 and pick up in 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the, entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kinds and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there, were, there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Now, at this point, there are hundreds of living beings on the ark, but you'll notice by that last statement, 
as it is with that first statement on the very same day, Noah and those with him, naming his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. And then verse 16, at the end of the Lord shut him in. The, the highlight is on the one that had walked with God, righteous Noah, yet God is the one doing the action. Verse 16 is an incredible phrase. And the Lord shut him in. Noah was told by God a flood was coming. And by faith, Noah responded to the instruction of God to build an ark, to collect animals, both two by two and of the clean animals, seven pairs of each, to bring them into the ark, to convince his wife and his sons and his sons' wives to get them together and bring them in. And yet no flood had come. And in their obedience, they entered the ark. But God makes the final action. The Lord shuts him in. All we're told about the entrance and exit of the ark is that there would be a door on the side. Nothing was written about the locking mechanism. Nothing was written about how it would be sealed. But know this, the Lord miraculously seals salvation inside of the ark. When the Lord sealed that door, there was no opening it from either side. What the Lord chooses to save will be saved forever. And what is outside of the salvation of God, that which is condemned because of its sin in that moment stood condemned. Yet the rain had not fallen, but there was no more opportunity for salvation because the Lord had shut the door. Then the Lord sends a supernatural flood destroying all life outside of the ark. Only that inside of the ark would be saved. Only that which God had sealed inside would find salvation. All outside would perish. Go back to those two verses we skipped, verses 11 and 12. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Stop here for just one moment. I want us to consider some numbers because I told you in the beginning, we oftentimes can get lost in the details and make these numbers mean things that they aren't intended to mean. Find meaning in places not, and by finding meaning in a place that it's not, we miss the intended meaning. Here's what we need to understand first by this detailed account of how old Noah is and when the flood comes, that this is a true historical event. That's what the author of Genesis is telling us. By giving us the year of Noah's life, by giving us the month of Noah's life, by giving us the day of the month of Noah's life, the author of Genesis is telling us this really happened. This isn't just a story intended to scare us from the judgment of God. This is an event that took place upon the face of the earth in ancient days. Then we see that it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Often in uh, Hebrew literature, the number 40 can just mean a whole lot. (laughs) Here, when we take that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and a part of that was what we will see, 150 days of the flood on the earth. Here's what the 40 days and 40 nights of rain tells us. This was a supernatural event. 
This wasn't the melting of some glacier in some place. This wasn't the bursting of some natural dam that flooded some valley that Noah and his family lived in. We don't need to look for explanations outside of the biblical text of where this water came from or where the water went. The most natural reading of this text is to read it as a supernatural sending of rain upon the earth. That the great fountains of the deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. There is no need for an alternative explanation. Now, if I get to heaven and find out there's an alternative explanation for what happened here, I'm not going to be mad at God. Our understanding of the sufficiency of scripture means this, that the Bible tells us everything we need to know, not everything there is to know. And certainly there's more to this story that we could have been told, but we're not told these things. Here's what we're told, that rain and water came like it has never come before or ever will come again. And so we Just as Noah built the ark by faith, we approach this text by faith and affirm that God did what God purposed in his heart in chapter 6 to do. To send a flood to destroy all living things with the breath of life inside of them. So you say, where did this water come from? It came from God. And as we will see next week, where did the water go? God took it. Look with me now. In 17 through the end of the chapter. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Everything created in the heaven, that space between the spans that we saw in Genesis 1, everything that was on the earth died. Now look at verse 23. He, God, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now quickly, I want us to see the contrast between verses 21 and 22 and verses and verse 23. Verse 21, because it seems they're saying very similar things and they are. They're describing the same death and destruction. They're describing the results of the judgment of God being poured out in water on the face of the earth. One from the perspective of the earth, as if one were standing on the earth itself watching this happen. Verses 21 and 22 gives us that perspective from, of the destruction of this flood from the earth. As you watch everything that God created on the dry land and in the air that has the breath of life in it destroyed. But verse 23 gives us a different perspective of the same event. You'll notice the main character is acting. 
the author of Genesis, is clear. Who is the one doing this? This was not an accidental flood. This was an intentional act of God in his judgment against sin. He blotted out. That word can mean wiped away. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. Later in that verse, they, the created things, were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. Verse 23 describes to us from a heavenly perspective what is happening here in this judgment, reminding us that it is the Lord's action which controls the fate of all living creatures. Now, this is a hard truth that we may want to just gloss over. And yes, I recognize there are children in the room and parents, you may have to have a, a, a discussion when you get home. But hear me clearly. Yes, the God that we worshiped this morning in joy is the same God who killed every living thing on the earth. The same God the Bible tells us loves us is the same God that in his wrath destroyed because of the sinful nature of man what he had created. And we need to hold in balance what the Bible tells us to be true about God. We can't just turn our backs on one truth of God and focus on those things that make us more comfortable about him. We must see that this is God acting. And verse 23 leaves us with no other explanation than it is God alone who blotted out every living thing on the face of the earth. This section describes the decreation of God's creative act in Genesis 1. It ends with the statement that the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. This would be five months of 30 equal days. Intended in the mind of the readers to take us back to the very beginning of Genesis. Where we are told that the spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep. That picture that we had of a formless and void earth where nothing could live and nothing could survive is the same picture that we are given here at the end of chapter 7. That all that remains floating on the water is that which God himself has saved. And that's where we end the story this week. At the halfway point, the earth covered in water of the flood of God's judgment. So what? The judgment of the Lord is severe, and he alone provides escape from it. This same God that judged the earth in Genesis 6 and 7 is the same God that stands in judgment on the earth today. Now, we have the full revelation of God in both the Old and New Testament which tells us that there is no longer an ark that will save us, but there is a savior who has come to save us. 
And if you know the end of this story, you know that God has promised that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. But God does not promise that he will never again destroy the earth. Judgment is coming. And there are those today who will maybe watch this online, possibly even sit in this room and scoff at that idea. And say, you Christians have been saying that forever. You've been saying God's judgment's coming forever and we just keep going on. Well, you know what? The Bible addresses you. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word of heaven and earth that now exists are stored up for fire, not water, but now fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in the, like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will burn up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter looks back through the lens of Christ onto the flood account in his second letter to the church and says, there are going to be people around you that say, God's, God's not judging us. Look, everything's just going and going and going. And Peter says, oh no, it's coming. Just as it came in the day of the flood, it's coming. You may be sitting here today or watching us online and you think that you just can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. That you'll never be held accountable as long as no one on earth finds out. You'll never be held accountable. Listen, clearly, judgment is coming. But notice what he says. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter provides for us in the midst of describing God's judgment... Also a view of his love and mercy in that God does not desire for any to perish. That would have been his desire pre-flood. His desire pre-flood that all would have lived righteous by faith as Noah, but they did not. And they earned his judgment. This by no means indicates that all will be saved. Don't take this passage to mean that because it does not. Just as most were not saved in Noah's day, likely many or most may not be saved in ours. But God offers salvation. He is the one who judges and his judgment is severe, but he, just as he provided a way of escape for Noah, provides a way of escape for us. In his other letter to the church, Peter, in 1 Peter, he also, in that letter, looks back on the flood. He writes this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here's what Peter's doing for us. Peter's bringing these two ideas in our mind, the ark of God in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, 
and the cross of Calvary in the New Testament. And here's what we see. Just as God waited patiently for Noah to provide that ark so that eight could be saved, animal kind along with them, God has sent his son Jesus to die once and for all and waits patiently for all that God will birth into new life to come to him in faith so that his entire church will be redeemed. You say, what's God waiting on? God's waiting on the redemption of his full church. That's what God's waiting on. And God is waiting patiently. And we don't get to look at God and say, well, why don't you just come? Aren't things bad enough? We don't get to say that. Our role in this life as Christians is to be grateful for every day that God has given us because it's one more day that we can proclaim the coming judgment of God and see people come to faith in Jesus Christ and enter the ark as Noah did and have that door sealed behind them knowing that there is no loss, that that judgment has been taken for us by Jesus in his death on the cross. Christians, that's how we read this account of Noah. Longing, or using the day ahead of us, the day that we have, knowing that we proclaim the gospel of salvation to people. For those of you who may not be in Christ, know this, judgment is coming, but salvation is offered freely to you. You feel the call of God today, then respond in faith Believe in him. Enter the ark that is Jesus, freely offered to you who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. If you will come to him in faith, he'll forgive you of your sin. He births in you a new heart, gives you a new passion to follow and to serve him and to proclaim this gospel until he does come. But make no mistake, he is coming. Let's pray. Father, in light of this passage of judgment, we still find joy because there is salvation in the ark and we recognize there is salvation in the cross of Christ. So would you call men and women and boys and girls to belief in that today? Would you birth in them a supernatural belief that comes only from a new heart in Christ? Would they know that Jesus died for them. That they don't have to suffer judgment as the people of ancient time did. They won't have to suffer the judgment that is coming because Christ suffered it for them, taking on the wrath of God in their place. I pray this in Christ's name, amen.